Chris, and I am an alcoholic. I'm looking forward to tonight. We're, uh, we're on the chapter more about alcoholism. I'm sorry, there is a solution. Chapter 2. And the last, the last three weeks, we've, we've basically been covering uh, some, uh, some information, some uh, historical information, uh, a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous and, and uh, some of the things that happened early on and you know why the book was written, uh, what, what the fellowship looked like back in the early days. And we've been uh, pretty much, though, staying with, uh, with step one. And it's going to be that way for a couple more weeks. There is a whole lot of information in this book uh, on step one. Um, it belabors the concepts that, uh, that Bill wants us to understand, that the first 100 alcoholics wants us to understand. It goes over example after example after example of what alcoholism looks like, how it shows up, how it presents, what are, what are some of the, what, you know, uh, there's descriptions of what alcoholics look like. Uh, there's the different, uh, uh, the different ways that we drink uh, and why we're different than other people. Uh, so I'm going to start on the chapter chapter two. There is a solution, but before I do that, I want to quickly jump to uh, a couple of sentences in the chapter uh, uh, We Agnostics, and there's a reason for that. This is page 44. I'm just going to read a couple of sentences in the, uh, in the top of We Agnostics, then I'm going to jump back to There is a Solution. In the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism. So that's the reason for the chapter more about alcoholism and There is a Solution. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. That's something Bill wanted to make clear, the difference between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic. It's not something that you hear a lot about in discussion meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous anymore. A lot of times they just assume you're alcoholic if you walk through the door. But in these chapters, they take their painstaking about covering the material that each of us needs to be able to identify ourselves as alcoholics, or if we're if we're working with somebody or taking somebody through the steps, the information that we need to identify them as as alcoholics. And then it says, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. Now that's a summation of everything that we're going to go through in the chapter, There is a Solution, and uh, the chapter more about alcoholism. But I wanted to read that so that maybe when, maybe when we're looking at these chapters, we're looking at them a little bit differently than we have in the past. We're looking at them as identifiers. Uh, the information that we need to fully concede to our innermost selves that we're alcoholic and we're powerless over alcohol and without help, it's going to be too much for us. Um, you can't get too much personal truth about the first step, but you can get too little I think the people that don't have a sense of urgency when they come into Alcoholics Anonymous and they just kind of sit around and hope to get it through osmosis and, and, and not get busy and then end up relapsing, I think, that it, I think that they're either unclear on the first step 
or or else you know or else they're one of they're, they're one of those people that cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program like bill says in how it works but what i don't want is i don't want somebody who's truly desperate to get over alcohol uh, get get over their alcohol problem to recover from alcoholism i don't want somebody who's desperate and willing to not be presented with the correct information a lot of times the correct information is not, you know, go do a 90 and 90 or whatever. That's, that's not what they did back in the early days to recover from alcoholism. Is a 90 and 90 a good idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. I like the people who do a 90 and 90 like this, 90 different meetings in 90 days. Okay, so that you really get a cross-section of what's going on in your area. But back in the day, they didn't have, they didn't have, they had two meetings in the United States. So how could they really do uh, a 90 and 90? So they got busy, they got busy with the steps. But let's get, let's get started with the chapter, um, there is a solution. I'm gonna jump around. You don't necessarily have to follow me in the book. If you just listen, uh, you know, and then go over this chapter uh, when you get home or, you know, the next time you, you want to study the book, that'll, that'll be fine. There is a solution. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. That's a great statement. Remember Bill's story precedes this chapter and it really really shows a hopeless alcoholic he was desperate to separate from alcohol for many many years before he was able to and that really is what um, what a hopeless alcoholic is someone who really wants to stop but finds they can't and it's also the most misunderstood person on the planet you know, somebody who, who swears to you that, you know, I, I, I never want to drink again, and then tomorrow they're drunk. If you don't understand alcoholism and you don't understand powerlessness, you, you think they're a lunatic. You know, you think they've lost their mind or they're being dishonest with you or whatever. It, but that's how, that's how um, alcoholism presents. It presents in an utter inability to stay separated from alcohol, no matter how much you want to, no matter what the consequences are uh, of you drinking. And we're going we're gonna to see this in, this in this chapter. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out upon which we can absolutely agree, upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. The tremendous fact is that we have discovered a common solution. In the day, when prior to putting this book together, there were a number of spiritual exercises that these, these men actually took. There was a way of living spiritually that they engaged in. And the people that did that recovered. And the people that didn't, you know, maybe they were, at best, they, were, they would stay sober for periods of time. At worst, they, they pretty quickly died. Uh, because these really were low-bottom alcoholics. An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe it in illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. 
Now, to stay out of controversy, when I talk about alcoholism, I do call it an illness. I happen to believe 100% that alcoholism is a disease. And that's only happened recently. Uh, and I, I became convinced that alcoholism is a disease because of an argument uh, a medical addiction doctor put forth in a movie called Pleasure Unwoven. I highly recommend this movie for anybody who likes you know, the nuts and bolts of you know, the medical view on alcoholism or addiction. And basically, this is the argument that he has. Uh, people who say alcoholism is a problem of choice use the argument that if you put a gun to somebody's head at a bar and tell them if you're going to take if you take a drink I'll blow you away they're they're most likely even if they're alcoholic they're most likely not going to take a drink so they're saying see it's a matter of choice they can choose not to drink but that but that argument doesn't really hold water because with the gun at your head and the glass of whiskey in front of you and you not drinking it, the suffering of alcoholism doesn't stop. That craving for alcohol doesn't stop. That's part of an addictive illness. And, and how they explain it today in medical science for the layman, because there's all kinds of brain chemistry functions that have been studied, but basically what it is, is it's, it's like the reptilian part of your brain. It's the instinctual part of your brain. It gets ideas, and those ideas are usually based on survival. You know, like, don't cross the street while cars are coming. These are like, these are like thoughts that we, that we have that are for self-preservation. Well, what happens is the thought to go across the street and go to the bar and buy whiskey is one thought in there, and then you've got other thoughts that are like, wow, the last time I drank whiskey, I ended up in a detox and 28-day program, and I lost my family and my job. You know, maybe I'd better not drink. You know, that's a thought that's in there, too. Or the thought that if I, if I start drinking whiskey, you know, my parole officer is going to give me, I'm going to get a dirty urine. You know, I'm going back to prison. I better not drink. You know, that thought could be in there, too. Well, what happens is part of the addiction uh, brain chemical cycle is the thought that a drink would make you feel better goes to the top of the line. And it may not be the smartest thought you have, but it goes to the top of the line. And at the top of the line, that's what you act on. Has anybody in here ever sworn off booze and then found themselves at the liquor store or at the bar? You know, absolutely. Now, now, if you really thought about it, wouldn't you have come to the conclusion that going to the liquor store or going to the bar was a bad idea? We're not stupid people. We just don't have access to that sound reasoning where it concerns alcohol because part of the addiction cycle is the leapfrogging of the thought process that a drink would make us feel better. And, you know, Bill and the boys who put this book together saw this and described it. This is still the best clinical description of alcoholism you'll ever find in this book. They basically saw what we're figuring out and being able to prove with science today. They figured this out 75 years ago.
And we're only just being able to prove it with some of the some of the studies today. Uh, if a person has cancer, all are sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt. But not so with the alcoholic illness, for with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferer. Now, isn't that true? Let, let's say, let's say for a minute, you know, for argument's sake, alcoholism is 100% a disease. Okay, it can be classified with heart disease or cancer or any of them. We don't treat alcoholics like they have a disease, though. Society doesn't. We we look on it like it's a, like it's a problem, like it's a moral failing. So many people still do. As sponsors, as treatment providers for addiction, we we, we continue this this stigma and this discrimination against people because they drink. If they drink. You, you know, you loser, you drank. You know, you got to stick with the winners. The losers are the guys that are drinking. That's 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 discrimination against somebody with addictive illness. Okay, because you know, if someone is powerless, how can we blame them for drinking? You know, would you blame somebody whose cancer came back? Your cancer came back. You know, and we were helping you, and we were supporting you. You know, I mean, would you do that? No, of course not. So we all have these these these, these embedded perspectives on on alcoholics, and, and you know we even have this unreasoning prejudice as far as alcoholism is concerned. When really, if we really and truly believed it was a disease, we would insist that the insurance companies pay for it. We would we would insist that no one could be discriminated against. But you know we stay out of that fight because somewhere in the back of our minds we do kind of think it's a matter of choice we do kind of think it's a matter of you know how 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 moral a, somebody is you know how they're out you know i'm not drinking today because i'm doing a better job morally than somebody you know it's 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 not the right way to look at it um Alcoholism brings uh, misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase the list. Now, they're talking about how we can help as recovered alcoholics. It says here, but the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, what solution? The 12 Steps who is properly armed with facts about himself, what facts? Well, the facts about the problem, which is step one, and the solution, which is steps two through twelve. We need to be properly armed with those facts about ourselves that come from our own experience. In other words, if we're going to be of real help to someone, we need to have gone through the steps, we need to have an awakened spirit as a result of those twelve steps, to be able to be of maximum benefit to these other alcoholics. Because we need to be armed with the facts about ourselves. Uh, and, you know, we have to have an experience of recovery. It says we can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. It's hard enough 
to convince somebody that they need to go through the 12 steps. It's hard enough if you've got the experience and you can say to them and convince them that, that, that you know what it's like. You know what they're feeling right now. You've had similar experiences. You've blown your life up as you know, you've blown your life up too at times. You, you know, you've you've gotten the DUIs. You you know, you you've tried to get away from booze and you couldn't. You you've had you've 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 had misunderstandings and doubts about what the heck is going on in your own drinking life. Also, you can help convince somebody that you know how know what they feel like, know where they are because you've been there yourself. And if you can do that, then it's even then it's hard enough to convince somebody of the to, to engage in. The the recovery process but if they don't believe you know what you're talking about there's very little chance you'd ever be able to convince them to do the things they need to do to recover the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty that he obviously knows what he's talking about that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer that he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful. No dues to pay, pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we have found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. Now, two things. They're talking about what, what they're going to cover in the chapter working with others. The chapter working with others covers the approach. On the first visit, on the second visit, how you approach a prospect, all that information is in the chapter working with others. But they're giving us a little bit of a clue about what what we're going to need to what we're going to need to do after our own personal recovery. None of us makes a sole vocation of this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. We feel that the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. That's a powerful sentence. Alcoholics Anonymous is not about sobriety alone. Is sobriety a good idea? You know, I'd recommend it. You, you know, uh, if you're alcoholic, uh, probably probably sobriety is going to be infinitely superior than, than drunkenness. But that's only a beginning. This isn't about sobriety. It's about recovery. It's about increasing your quality of life. It's about uh, becoming more effective with personal relationships. It's about getting to a point where you're not in pain because of your emotional nature. You're not suffering from depression and anxiety and guilt and remorse and shame and self-centered fear and all that stuff. You've gotten to a point where, uh, where you've recovered. And uh, being recovered also has to do with being emotionally healthy. Most of the time. So that's really what we have to offer here. We have to offer a whole lot more than mere sobriety. When I came into AA, I would have been happy just to be able to stay away from booze because I was shooting myself in the foot. I don't know about anybody else, but I was getting DUIs like you wouldn't believe. I'll share, I'll share a couple of DUI stories with you. And just keep in mind that I'm not a stupid guy, you know? And, I, and make sure you're thinking about that when I'm, when I'm explaining these stories. I'm in this bar one night, and Andrea actually was there with me. This is 1975, okay? I'm in this bar, Pittstown, New Jersey. They're playing country music, and, and there's, you know, there's square dancing. We're just, we're just having a hoot nanny, you know? And, I, and I, the, one of the last things I remember is chugging pitchers of beer. 
Okay. Now that is not social drinking. Okay. <laughs> Anybody in here, if if you have experience chugging pitchers of beer, you know that's a little bit abnormal. But I was chugging pitchers of beer, uh, allowed myself to become overserved, as was uh, as was normal for me. And what happened was, uh, my, you know, my ride home disappeared. So I had to brave the roads myself. So um, so I'm driving. I made it about a mile and a half away from uh, away from the uh, uh, the bar and I hit some black ice and the car slid, slid around backwards and smashed into a bridge abutment going backwards about 40 miles an hour I was thrown out the back window I, I remember looking up and my legs were still in the car but I was laying on the trunk of the car looking up and seeing the stars now you know I, sh- I shook myself off I you know I got up and the car was still running believe it or not but it, it had you know it had three flat tires there wasn't a window left in it it was bent like a boomerang you know the lights were facing like this but what do you do <laughs> I, I am in the right room <laughs> you, you know why I say that cuz that is the right answer you know I'm going home. You know? so, so I start driving this thing, okay? And it's got three flat tires. I'm going, whack it up, look at the bam, whack it up, look at the bam. And I remember driving by a cop taking radar, okay? He's like, he didn't even pull me over, he walked me over, okay? Uh, so, so, so. And he reaches in the window and he starts shaking me. Where'd you have that accident? I'm like, what accident? Accident officer, a glass flying out of my hair. Uh, DUI number one, 1975. You know, the cops were cops were always hassling me. And he goes, he goes, where are you going? Uh, I go Basking Ridge. He goes, that's 43 miles. You don't have any tires. I'm like, leave me alone. You know, I know what I'm doing. Oh God. I'm gonna fast forward all the way to my last DUI. Okay, this this one happened in like 19. I think it was 1984, 1983. Uh, I'm back. I'm back. I'm living back with mom. Okay, because because you know where, where do you go when you're like a macho guy? The cops are after you. You you lost one more job, you know, and the wife and the kids are gone, and you know the bill collectors are after you, and there's people who want to break your legs. And you say to yourself, I, I wonder if mom needs any help around the house. You know? So so I'm living back. I'm living back in New Jersey, and you know, with mom and 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 some and some poor old roommate, uh, you know, who didn't know how bad I was at that time, decided to call me up. He was in town. Hey, let's let's go out drinking. So we go out drinking, and I remember bits and pieces. You, you remember? You remember? Uh, 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 what, what are they called? Uh, hazy recollections. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Where you, you remember little bits, and you you know you can kind of put a little bit of the night together. Well, I remember being in this bar called uh, Gasoline Alley, and I am way drunk. Okay, I go up. I go up to the bartender, and I go, bartender. If I were you, I wouldn't even serve me. And he goes, well, why are you saying that? I go, because I'm drunk out of my mind. And he goes, well, for being so honest, what do you have? It's on the house. Okay? So, so I go, 
I'll have a triple bourbon. Okay? And he made three things of bourbon. There's this much room in the glass for, for Coke, for bourbon and Coke, right? And he takes the spritzer and he holds it over the glass and I go... And he goes, like this, you know. And, and I start drinking. I start drinking. I'm about halfway through this drink, and I'm looking around. And I see, a, I see a table of very attractive women sitting there talking and having a drink. And I think to myself, they would benefit greatly, I, you know, from my presence. You know, I, I could really lighten up, you know, their life a little bit here. So, so I start heading across the room toward this table of women. And I get about halfway there and they look over and they see me coming and it's like they're like oh, you know, they're horrified and, and I get I get almost to the table and I trip and, and I land on their table and I knock all their drinks into their lap and everything and so, so my buddies are grabbing me they're taking me out to the car I end up I end up back over this guy's house I end up back over to this guy's house, and I don't remember much, but I think I got in an argument with him, and, you know, it was his parents' house, and I had a problem with how his parents were living in their own house or something, you know. You know, they said something to me, you know how that is. What'd you say? You know, and, uh, and I had to leave. I had to leave really quick. So, again, I'm overserved, and I'm driving. Now, supposedly, I crossed the double yellow. Okay, you know how cops are. Supposedly. Now, he comes up, he pulls me over, I pull over, comes up, he knocks on the window, you know, I roll in the window, and uh, he goes, license, registration, insurance card. So, they're in the glove compartment, you know, it's my mother's car. They're in the glove compartment, so I'm reaching over, and I'm going through, I'm going through the glove compartment, looking for him, and I'm going through, and I'm going through, and I'm going through, and finally, the hell with this, I grab the entire contents of the glove compartment just hand it to the cop okay? there's maps and packages of tissues and hairbrushes and you know pens and, and out of the car you know, oh God! So he did. He did some kind of field sobriety. I remember. I remember hazy recollections. Remember, I remember being in the police department later that night, uh, being filmed. Anybody in here ever have their DUI thing filmed? Oh, I see some heads turning. Uh, did, have you ever seen the video of that? Is, it, is that horrifying? I mean, you need therapy after after something like that. But anyway, here I am. I'm, I'm getting filmed. And I thought I did a really good job because I can remember nailing the ABCs. Okay, it has nothing to do with I learned them when I was five, but I, na- I know I nailed them. So I hire this lawyer. You know, I get this. I wake up with the summons. I hire this lawyer. And I, I tell, him, you know, I refuse a breathalyzer and everything. We're going to fight this miscarriage of justice. I'll tell you what I know. I nailed the ABCs. And uh, so, so what happens is I hire this fifteen hundred dollar lawyer gets all suited up and we go up to the police station to view the DUI video okay now I knew I was in trouble when I went in there because the cop that handed us the VHS tape was sniggering he was going like you know so I was like oh boy and we put it in and we press play and I am horrified I mean, if you have never seen a video of yourself tongue-chewing, knee-walking, not able to operate your own pants, zipper drunk, you are missing something, okay? Anyway, 
And I nailed the ABCs, all right? It gets to the ABCs. Here's how I nailed them. Can I have a cigarette? And I'm like, oh, my God. And there's there's actual video where they've got me walking the line. I'm hanging on to the cop. I mean, oh, it's, oh, it's just horrible. And I, my head is, like, sinking in shame. But but I've paid $1,500 to this lawyer, so he's taking notes, and he's got the, the three-piece suit, and he's real serious. And it gets to the end of this video, and the cop goes, uh, uh, Mr. Schroeder, well, you know, we're going to turn the video camera off, uh, but before we do that, We'd just like to ask you, is there anything you would like to add? Oh, no. And that's exactly what I said. I said, oh, no. I look over at the camera and I go, like this, right? I'm like, oh, my God. The attorney who's been real, you know, real, he breaks down laughing. He's like, wow. I've never seen anything so stupid in my life. If you had any chance of eating this, wah, you just blow it. And I'm like, oh, I guess we'll plea, you know. Uh, now, now, think about it. You know, I had a really bad experience in 1975. Why am I still drinking and driving in 1983? Why have I had three DUIs? Why have I totaled nine cars and drunken blackouts? Why do I still continue to do that? It doesn't make any sense because I'm not stupid. Getting my license back for a third DWI, I want to tell this story. I had to go to Wayne Motor Vehicle, all right? Getting my license back, I got drunk to go get my license back. And they didn't want to give me the paperwork because I was quite obviously drunk getting my license back for a third DUI at the motor vehicle. Now, you know, you know I mean, you got you to gotta think about this. This is, this is how alcoholism can present by being incredibly stupid where it concerns alcohol. It doesn't mean that we're stupid people. It means where alcohol is concerned, we just can't see right from wrong. We can't see truth from false. We don't know how much trouble we're in. What's wrong with having a vodka or two before I go stand in line at the motor vehicle? You know, what's really wrong? It's a free country, isn't it? Don't they sell alcohol legally at the, at the, at the store? What's the problem? You know, that's the way I, that's the way I would think. And I thought, I thought with drinking and driving, I thought, you know, if you're going to be driving, you should you should drink. You should face traffic with confidence. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just kind of the way I thought. It's it's incorrect thinking. It's insane thinking. But it's thinking that that because we suffer from alcoholism, a lot of times that stuff makes sense to us. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense to the cop that's pulled you over, but it makes a lot of sense to us. You know, anybody in here have DUIs in their history? Anybody in here have a lot of DUIs in their history? There you go. Oh, man. 
Alright, they're talking about this book. We've concluded to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. We shall bring to task our combined experience and knowledge. So the first 100, which were really about the first 80, you know, there were a lot of people going in and out at that time. It really is their combined experience and their combined knowledge. Because what happened is when these first chapters were being written, Bill Bill was getting them written with Hank Parkhurst and Hank's secretary, you know, somewhere in Newark, New Jersey, and they they would turn out these chapters, and then they would send them to Akron, and then they would bring them to the New York meetings. And the meetings, the get-togethers, were all about, let's read these chapters and see see if they're right, see if they make sense, see if we can make them better. And so for a good year or so, these chapters were being read at the Akron and the New York meetings, and many suggestions were being made, and many revisions. There was probably a hundred rewrites to the first four or five chapters in this book. And so it really is, the first four or five chapters really are the combined experience of the early AAs. They knew what worked. I mean, if it worked, they were there. They were sober. If it wasn't working, they were gone. Uh, Over on page 20, it says, If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may be asking, what do I have to do? That's the, that's the thing where we, we, we can get this wrong with alcoholism. We can get this wrong. We don't, we don't ask, what do we have to do? We ask things like, what do we need to know? Can you tell me how to figure this out? This is a problem. I've got a drinking problem. Problems are meant to be solved. How do I solve this problem? Well, the the right questions are more important, really, than the right answers a lot of times. And what we need to be asking is, what do I need to do? Because it's about, recovery is about what you do, not about what you think or what you come to understand or what you learn. It's more about how you're, it's more about behavior modification than it is about understanding. It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. What question? The question, what do I have to do? We shall tell you what we have done. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. Now, here's the description. There's no definition of alcoholism. It's very, very hard to define alcoholism. You don't want to, you don't want to, to, to hem it in with explicit parameters because it manifests in many different ways with many different people. There are some things that are common to all of us, but not every case of alcoholism is, is presenting in the exact same way. But what, you, what, what they realize they could do is give a description. Now, how you turn these descriptions into something you can use is you turn these statements into questions and you put your own name in there. I'll give you an example of how that's done. How many times did people say to Chris, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't you? Did anybody ever say that to you? Chris, why don't you why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? Chris can't handle his liquor. Chris, why don't you try beer and wine and lay off that hard stuff? I heard that a lot. Because they were thinking, you know, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. Why do you have a quart of vodka with you? You know? I don't even start drinking beer until 5 in the afternoon. It's like, shut up. 
Chris's willpower must be weak. Uh, he could stop if he wanted to. Here's a great one. She's such a sweet girl, I think Chris would want to stop for her sake. What? <laughs> I'm drinking because of her, you know? Oh. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him, but there he is all lit up again. How about the judge told him, you know, if you ever drink and drive again, you know, you're not, you're you're not going to see your license until they're Jetson mobiles. You know what I mean? I've heard that one. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. Now, here's, the, here's a brilliant part of this book. Ignorance and misunderstanding. They, they really did understand alcoholism. There's a lot of treatment centers. There's a lot. There's a lot of drug programs. There's a lot of a lot of people out there who are supposed to understand us that really don't. We see these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different than ours. We are a distinct entity. We are bodily and mentally different than our fellows if we're alcoholic. We need to understand that. We need to embrace that. And we need to concede that. That we are different. Our reaction to alcohol is different than Aunt Fanny's and Uncle Fudd's. They can have a couple of glasses of wine. And then they start to feel it. You ever drink with people that start to feel it on you? Yeah. My God. That's the whole point. Of course you feel it. Why would you drink? You know, if you didn't... Here's, here's, some, here's, some, here's some stuff that we need to pay attention to. Because remember, I took us to the first paragraph of We Agnostics. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. And here's where it starts to show a description of a moderate drinker, a hard drinker, and an alcoholic. So let's pay attention to this. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. That's usually not us. If we, get, if, we, if we find our way into Alcoholics Anonymous, it's usually not us. There are moderate drinkers that end up in here because they've gotten a DUI or a court order or whatever. But they get the hell out as soon as they can because they realize it's an overreaction to a problem that they can handle. And they can if they're a moderate drinker. They can just not do that anymore. I wish I could just not do that anymore. I kept doing it. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically or mentally. So this is somebody who's drinking a lot of booze. It's impairing them physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If, but if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate. Although he may find it difficult and troublesome, and may even need mental, medical attention. He may even need to go to Happy Hills, just to, just to break the habit. But it's just a habit. It's not, in the, it's not an alcoholism. It's, you know, a habit. Now, I had a roommate in college. His name was Jeff. And every single weekend, we would plan on going, getting into a blackout and causing trouble. <laughs> 
We say, well, let's, stay, let's go have a blackout. I mean, we were crazy drinkers. I was a bourbon drinker, and he was a rum drinker. And we would both buy quarts of our stuff, and we would drink until we passed out on the floor. And there was a lot of times we caused a lot of trouble. We had a lot of car wrecks. We embarrassed ourselves in a number of ways. We annoyed people, and, you know, uh, people thought we were absolutely crazy. Uh, and we drank just like each other. What happened was he met a girl, and he fell in love with this girl, and this girl saw him one time drinking with me and said, Oh, no, 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 no. You aren't going to be doing that again if you want to be in my presence. And guess what? He moderated for the rest of his life. He'll have one or two drinks. He will never get drunk again. All right, that was a that was a heavy drinker who who with sufficient reason, you know, I'm you know, I'm going to break up with you is able to moderate. Now, but that's not that was not me. See, I was an alcoholic and he was a heavy drinker. We looked exactly alike. And we got the DUIs the exact same way. And we and we, we started the apartment on fire the same way. And 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 we would leave the we would leave the, the chicken in the toaster oven while we passed out the same way. And we you know, we would come to and there'd be smoke everywhere and there'd be a meteorite, you know, in the in the toaster oven. We did all that stuff. But the but the difference was with sufficient reason, this guy was able to moderate. He just gave it up. It was more fun being with this woman than it was running around drinking with me. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. This is one part of step one. This is the physical craving. Does anybody in here relate to this? I mean, sometimes it's very difficult being completely honest with ourselves about this. Our ego wants us to say we just changed our mind. You know, like like it's Friday and we've got the paycheck and we're just going to stop off for a couple of drinks. And we change our mind and blow the whole paycheck. I think I'll blow the whole paycheck and, you know, come to somewhere in, in a field Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. All right? Our, our egos want us to be in control. Nobody, you know, who among us wishes to admit complete defeat that we have absolutely no control? None of us. So we tell ourselves lies. Alcoholics, one of the things I used to hear in AA meetings all the time was, was denial's not a river in Egypt. Denial is not what alcoholics suffer from. You know what denial is? Denial is saying the 12 traditions are not up on a shade behind me. Okay, that's denial. They're not there. Those 12, decisions, 12 traditions are not there. That's denial. Delusion is me actually thinking they're not there. Actually believing they're not there. There's two different things. The alcoholic suffers from delusion, which is infinitely worse than denial. Denial is just a, a lie. Delusion is an insanity. Um, Here's a fellow who's been puzzling you, you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. Here's where I put myself into it. Does Chris do absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking? You have no idea. 
He's a, is he a real Jekyll and Hyde? I used to answer the door with a handgun. It would be it would be Girl Scouts selling cookies. You know, I'd be drinking, or I'd be like be drinking at the bar, la da da, la da da, la da da, and I'd cross a cross a, a, a line, and somebody would say something, and I'd want to take my highball glass and smash it through their face. You know, I'd be, you, you know what I mean? I'd, I'd just snap, and all of a sudden I'm psychotic. I'll kill you. You know. Jekyll and Hyde, you know it. He's seldom mildly intoxicated. You know, there's a lot of people out there who just put on a buzz, you know? I knew a lot of beer drinkers, you know? They, they, would, they would just kind of maintenance drink some beers and just have like a mellow, you know, just good, I'm, I'm good. They would never get out of control. They'd never crash any cars. They'd never get into crazy fights or anything. They just kind of kept it cool. That's not me. I, you know, I was a blackout drinker. I would start drinking and I would go into a blackout so fast it would make your head spin. I would be sober at 5 o'clock when I went to the liquor store and in a blackout by 7. And that really cut, started to cut down on my social life. <laughs> he is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgusting, even dangerously antisocial. Did Chris get disgusting and dangerously antisocial? You know it. There wasn't anybody left in my life in the last two years of my drinking. Anybody that had any sense at all was like, it is not good being in this guy's presence. He may be funny, he may be a lot he may be a blast to be with. But he crosses this line, he turns into like Charles Manson. You know, I'm not going to be in his presence anymore. And so I became an isolation drinker. I, w I was drinking on my own, basically trying to seek oblivion. <clears throat> um, he has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment. Like when he's getting his license back for a third DUI. <laughs> Particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. Um, he is often perfectly sensible and well balanced concerning everything except liquor. Uh, it goes on and on and on. Read this description. Highlight anything in this that you relate to. You know, the more of, well, the more of this you can say, yes, this is me. The closer you're going to get to the first step. <clears throat> As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-power sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. This is what I did. I, you know, one time I went to a doctor because what was happening was when I was getting up at, at 6.30 in the morning to go to work at 7, I'd be shattered and I'd be shaking. I'd be nervous, like like, uh, like really high-strung. So I went to the doctor. I said, Doc, I'm like high-strung all the time. And I wake up and I'm really nervous. And, uh, and he, he takes his hooter and he listens to my heart. And it's going, you know, because I'm going through detox. And he goes, well, sounds like you have a protracted mitral valve, and that really could cause uh, acute anxiety. There's this new drug for anxiety. I'm going to write you a prescription. <clears throat> it's called Xanax. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, what kind of milligrammages do those things come in, Doc? Because uh, I'm probably going to need the big ones. And, uh, <clears throat> within a month, I'm not eating. Now, on the label, it says no alcohol in the biggest letters you've ever seen, okay? But... 
Yeah. I'm an alcoholic. That no alcohol is like for amateurs. Or something, you know, the, the disco drums or something. You know. So, so am I drinking with them? I wasn't even counting them. I was weighing them in my hand. I ate about 20 of them at one shot, and I chugged like a half a bottle of vodka. Now. This will make you limber, okay? <laughs> Within like an hour, I'm, I'm drooling, and you know, all my furniture's broken in the house, you know, from trying to go across the room. <clears throat> it was a mess. So, you know, high power sedative, absolutely. Both Bill and Dr. Bob had drug issues. And they had the drug issues basically because they were trying to moderate their hangovers with these drugs. And, and uh, you know, they were going into detox. <clears throat> and detox is awful scary. Either you drink your way through a detox by having a little hair of the dog, or you get some high power sedative, which uh, is not really the answer, by the way, if you're new or just coming back. <clears throat> Anyway, <laughs> perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. <clears throat> Back in the 30s, morphine was a real problem. You could go to you could go to the the drugstore and buy Aunt Millie's hay fever remedy, and it would have morphine in it. You know, there were so many over-the-counter morphine remedies back then. You have no idea. Most uh, most of the treatment centers that, that really started to pop up in the mid 1800s, half of the people they treated were morphine addicts. <clears throat> the other half was alcoholics. Some cocaine people, but the cocaine people were were weird. They'd feel good way too fast, you know what I mean? Like, I've been here two days, and, you know, I'm ready to handle this whole thing on my own. Anybody ever sponsor one of them? I got this. It's been two days. I got this. This is no, by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. So, you want to be identified roughly as as an alcoholic, you know, take a look at some of this stuff. Now, you may not have gone down the scale this far. Remember, these were low-bottom alcoholics that they were dealing with back in the day. But there should be some things that you can relate to, <clears throat> so that you can say, "Ali, Ali, oxen free." You know, I'm all in. You know, if, if if you can't, you really may be in the wrong room. Uh, <clears throat> over on page 23. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink. So they're talking about that craving. When you pick up the first drink, it always asks you to take the second. And the second one always insists on taking the third. And the third always demands that you take the fourth. I mean, that's what the, that's what the physical craving is like. When we have alcohol in our system, we want more alcohol in our system. And come hell or high water, we're putting more alcohol in our system. When I started drinking, I knew I was in it. Okay, I, di I didn't. I didn't tolerate things that would break me off from it. There was this one time when I was going over to meet my first girlfriend's parents. Okay, and I went over there, and I'm, I got to be kind of cool, you know, because because I'm 19 and she's 15, you know, and the old man's kind of like looking at me, you know. So, but they offer me a drink. They offer me a beer, so I drink the beer, and I'm done with the beer, and I'm like, uh, you got another beer? <laughs> No, that was the last one. That was the last one. I'm thinking, 
would they have like two beers in the refrigerator? Why would you do that? That would be like going to the store for a half of a cigarette or something. It make no sense. So, uh, so I'm like, well, um, you got you got any scotch? You know? <laughs> no, we don't have any scotch. And uh, I. You know, I just remembered that my my mother has to go to the hospital. Yeah, you know, and, uh, and I'd love to stay for dinner, you know, but uh, but I started the motor running and you got no more alcohol, you morons! I gotta go, you know. And so I made my excuses and I and I was off and running. And you know, this is not how a non a non alcoholic could have had a beer. You know what I mean? I don't know how they do it, but they can have a beer. Oh. Therefore, the main problem in the alcoholic center is mind rather than his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. You know, Why did you start up again? Well, because I wanted to lose my family and my driver's license. And I was looking forward to another 28 days in Happy Hills, you know? What do you think? I love wallet-making class, you know? I still have an ashtray I made, you know? I call it the resentment ashtray. Because... I don't know about anybody else, but I had issues when I was in treatment, you know? I was always mad at somebody. The tragic truth is that if a man be a real alcoholic, the happy day is not going to arrive when they can just summon up their willpower and decide to be normal drinkers. We want that with all of our might. I was trying to chase a high I felt when I was 15 and I first started to drink. All was right with the universe. I felt I had a Seagram 7 and 7. Okay? And the glow, it went through me and the glow was wonderful. And I felt one with the world. And I felt like I was the funniest guy and everything was cool. And I could go to that dance at the school without, you know, uh, lead legs. And I could be what I wanted to be. And I didn't have that fear. And I had that wonderful fear feeling. I was chasing that feeling. I didn't get that feeling the last 10 years of my drinking. I usually went from being, you know, uh, being filled with self-pity. You know, I'd either be crying, you know, watching a love boat rerun, or, or else I'd be really mad, you know, calling up my boss drunk and threatening his life. I'm going to kill you! And I did that once, and I was in a blackout, and I didn't remember doing it. And I went walking into work the next day after I threatened his life. He's like, you! You, what are you doing here? I'm like, what? What's your problem, man? You threatened my life! Get out of here, you psychotic! The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. What does losing the power of choice in drink mean? In drink is before you drink it, and in drink is after you drink it. You only got the two problems. 
One of them is when you're not drinking, and the other is when you're drinking. If it weren't for those two problems, you'd probably be okay. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times, that's what fools a lot of us, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force of memory the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first strength. So just keep your memory green. Everything's gonna be fine. No, you won't be able. You won't be able to remember the suffering and humiliation of even a week ago. That's not going to be a defense. So if you think that just remembering how awful it was is going to keep you from drinking again, you haven't learned anything. Powerlessness is powerless. You're not going to think about how awful it was. You're going to remember that 7 and 7 in high school. You're not going to remember the projectile vomiting on the cop last week. You're going to remember that 7 and 7 back in high school where everything was right with the world. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazily, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure, the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. This is absolutely true of us. Uh, no, you know, this is this is what makes people just not understand what the heck is going on with us. Um, next week, I'm going to start with. Um, there is a solution on the top of page 25, and I thank you all for uh, for listening tonight.